Happy Wednesday to you folks and welcome to Got Your Back NHL edition. Mike Johnson and Pierre Lebrun are standing by and also today on the podcast, Montreal Canadiens general manager Kent Hughes as well joins us to talk about his plans over the next uh, few weeks, see if he's got anything going on. As always, Got Your Back NHL edition brought to you by our fabulous title sponsor, Kuma Outdoor Gear, where they've got a wide range of gear to fit all your outdoor needs. Tents and sleeping bags, travel games, pet products and drinkware. And they love their new switchback heated chair. Yes, heated by Bluetooth technology. Kuma gear is available across North America. Go to kumaoutdoorgear.com to see all that they have to offer. As we check in with the fellas, MJ and uh, Pierre Lebrun, everybody at home. MJ, did we catch you at home for once? I, it's been nice. I've been home for like a week straight. I got a game last night in Toronto. I got a game tomorrow night in Toronto. Then I head down to the outdoor games in Jersey. But I've been home for a week, so it's been it's been lovely. It's been lovely to just kind of take a car and not a plane to, to work. So I got no complaints whatsoever. And I get to hang in the same city as Pierre. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we actually had briefly had some snow last night in Toronto. It was unbelievable. I forgot it was winter. It was in- incredible. Yeah, dr- was driving nice. home. What is this white stuff on the ground? What is going on here? This is a, this <laughs> oh, is you not, poor uh, guys. It's not been the case this year, but it's been. Yeah, it's it's all good. And you know what is funny? Like Toronto has been a lot of noise the last couple of days, so it was nice just to play a game. And they played well, which was uh, which was different. Wait, there was noise in Toronto the last couple of days. I mean, noise all that is. What are, you, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm surprised that neither one of you mentioned, uh, you know, being able to be home with your uh, wives on Valentine's Day. I just thought that would be immediately where you went. But it's Valentine's Day, gentlemen, and here we are. So I wish you a, I, I did not a happy forget. Valentine's Day. There was a gift. Uh, there was a gift waiting my wife in the morning. 24 years married this summer. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, my memory is oh. going, but not that badly. Yeah. Is it too personal to ask what? Uh, what uh, yeah, yeah. We, we're going down a rabbit hole. We're not sure we're going to go to here, Chucky. <laughs> My curiosity got the better of me there. I need to know this uh, now. Just, I just, need just to know. Chocolates and, uh, and an ice card and so on. Let's, let's that leave it at that. Yeah. Too much yeah. information. <laughs> Johnny, come on. TMI coming early in the morning. How does that make you Pierre is a Stop romantic. It. I've spent time on the road with Pierre. He is a romantic. Oof. Uh, that's also too much information (laughs) where is this going okay happy valentine's day boys uh let's move on by the way i think i just came up with the red card yellow card no card uh friends wishing (laughs) friends friends wishing friends happy valentine's day We'll we'll just ruminate on that one for a minute we might we might get back to that later in the podcast let's get to the breakdown guys brought to you by kinprint over 100 combined years of experience if you can dream it kinprint can make it happen providing embroidery signage printing logo design let KinPrint help you take your brand to the next level. Visit KinPrint.ca. They are the architects of the hat that I am currently wearing. Got some Got Your Back hats uh, finally in stock. And guys, as uh, soon as we make some money on this podcast, I'll spend some and ship one to you. So uh, stand by. Hats hopefully coming your way uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. No place to start today, uh, fellas, other than Connor McDavid. I mean, what a third period. What a move. That spinorama move that he made. So six assists last night, in case you missed it. Um, that spinorama move he made, Mike Johnson, like Evander Kane didn't even need to shoot the puck. 
he literally banked it in off of his stick, and the degree of difficulty was insane. That's McDavid supernova if we've ever seen it. That's one of those ones where you like, just go to the net and put your stick on the ice, and I'll do the rest. <laughs> and that's yeah. what he did. I love the fact that Connor McDavid, even through junior, where you assume he must have had multiple 10-point nights, which I don't think he did, but like it feels like he should have, has never had a sixth-assist game. He's had like yeah. three six-point games, apparently, one of which a junior, one in the NHL, but no six-assist game. He's doing stuff he's never done before. What are we talking about right now? Amazing for him, and... You know, the Oilers sort of scuffled by their standard for a couple of games. The offense wasn't rolling, and then they've come back and scored a bunch, and McDavid been in the center of it all. Um, you know, I guess we should cease being surprised by the stuff he does or the numbers he puts up because he is that guy right now in the NHL. But we still have to take pause like, wait a second, six assists? Like, you don't even score six goals in a game in the NHL anymore. Six assists? Um, incredible stuff, Pierre. And you can't help. The second I saw all these points piling up, right to the scoring list. I can't help myself. I'm like, oh, hang on. Oh, yeah. Oh, hang on. Now he's tied. Like, he's tied pasta now. He's in third. And what is he, 13 behind Kucherov, who's going great guns as well at 90. But Pierre, I mean, what are you going to say? He's He's got to be even money to win the Art Ross at this point. Like, that's how great he is. And that's how great he was again last night. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I did the same thing. I said, oh, he must have bridged the gap on uh, on on McKinnon and Kucherov and so on. Still 13 points behind Kucherov. Like, the great season no one's talking about, Nikita Kucherov. I know you have, MJ. I'm just kidding. Um, but also, it's a reminder that nights like this haven't been the headline during the Oilers' resurgence over the last couple months, right? I mean, they've won with mm -hmm. defense on many nights, won with goaltending, and, uh, and won with contributions from other players. So it's almost like, David put his hand up and said, I got one for you guys tonight. Just a reminder, <laughs> number 97. Oh, um, my beer. And it was, yeah, and it was fabulous to watch. Um, but 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 to me, that's the one of the things I thought about, too, is that it doesn't have to be about that for this Oilers team right now. It's great when it happens now, but it's not a prerequisite for an Oilers victory, right? Um, it's just fun now when we get to see those nights. And it's funny, Cider, who's an unbelievable player, of course, on the back end for Detroit, <laughs> He was victimized a couple times last night. He must be thinking, uh, I'm glad that the Red Wings years ago moved the Western Conference to the Eastern Conference because I don't need this every night. That was that was a lot to handle for him. Fourth fastest player to 600 assists uh, from the Quizmaster behind Gretz, Lemieux, and Bob Yor. He also chimes in, if you take Connor McDavid from his second season, not including the abbreviated rookie season, He's got 571 assists in 571 games. That's 135 more than anybody else over that period. I mean, that is domination in that time. It's 25% more than anyone else. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that, that's something. He is second in the league in points per game, right? Because you, you talk about him being 13 points back right, here, he but that. he's. Right. He's only got 47 games played, right? Kucherov's got uh, 50. Yeah, the Oilers have games in hand on everyone. It, it, the only thing I will say about that is, like, I, I'm like you guys. In the first half of the year, I look at points percentage and the standings over points because of all the the different schedules happening with teams. I will. This is the one little quirky thing that I have, and you know, I have a lot of weird stuff about stats. Once I get the March first, which we're still not there yet. Once I get the March first, I no longer care about games in hand. Because I've talked to teams over the years who said the thing they actually hate 
is when they have more games to play than most teams in the stretch because it gets it gets to be a grind. The teams that have 14 games to play in March, like you think mathematically they've got a chance to make up a lot of ground or this or that. What tends to often happen is it's just too much of a grind. You So I look at points in the actual bank come March 1st. I change where I look at the standings. That might work for the standings, Pierre. But I, if I'm going to make a run at the scoring title... Games in hand work pretty well for Connor McDavid. Right. He's going to keep <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna win or lose those games. Right? Win or lose, he's, he's going to pick his up his couple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I was on overdrive with the guys last week, and and Hayes asked me, you know, basically asked me, do I think McDavid's going to take a run at this thing? And I said, no. So I said, I don't. My oh. sense is he's not just going to go supernova and win the whole thing. That that's not. They're super. They're focused on winning games and playing the right way. Right. It's just not something that's front of mind for him this year. And then he goes and gets six apples last <laughs> night and looks like he wants to win the scoring race with every shift in that third period. Question yeah. for you, Ryan. You know him well. And I've been mm-hmm. around great players and, you know, mm-hmm. heart trophy winners and all the rest of it. Do you think if he consciously said, I want to score a ton of points, his game would look drastically different? Yeah, I Legitimate think so. Legitimate question. I'm not so sure. You think yeah, so? No, I do. Connor McDavid decided he wanted to be a goal scorer last year, and he went out and was the best goal scorer. He well, he has okay, this so if ability he said, when he yeah. There's thirty. There's thirty five games left. I need to make up thirteen yeah. points. What does he change to do that? If he's trying to chase it down. Yeah. So yeah. Well, good question. More, you know obviously. what we're yeah. You know what we're seeing a lot of from Connor McDavid these days when they're in these games. He'll skate the puck up to center ice, and if he doesn't like what he sees, he'll dump it in, and he'll go change. He'll when they're in games that are one two goal games. There's a there's a bit of a difference in the way that he you know, and I don't want to say he cheated before, but if you're going to get more points than anybody else, there's a certain amount of cheating that's going to have to happen. I'm telling you, he's more focused on the situation they're in in game, okay. the chances that he is and isn't willing to take. You can tell when he's thinking about just get these points in the bank versus like for the team versus mm. let's go get some points in the bank mm. for himself. So I do see a difference guys. Right. I do. I, I, okay. I will add to that, Ryan, that I, I chatted with Jeff Jackson uh, just before all-star break. And, you know, he's not only, you know, in charge of the Oilers now, but of course has been with Connor McDavid forever as, as his agent. And, and he said, cause sometimes the narrative starts to take off and you're like, you know, cause we've heard all year McDavid and, and dry sidle are, are more focused on their 200 foot game. And, and Jeff Jackson was no. It's I, I have seen a whole other level from from both those guys, and not just defensively, he said, but the way that they lead the charge physically. Like McDavid yep. has been taking over games where he's hammering the D and making space for himself, and the whole bench is feeding off that, right, Ryan? And so it's interesting to hear that from Jackson, who's seen him hmm. since a teenager. That it's not just everyone else saying this; that the people very close to him are seeing this in his game as well. MJ, chances that he wins the scoring... Go ahead, go ahead. Jeff Jackson would say that no matter how Conor McDavid was playing, to be fair. (laughs) Let's be honest. He's going to say, oh, actually, you know what? He's got some holes in his game. He's cheating a little. He's never going to say that. They never say... I'm not saying it's not true in this case. I'll tell you, I've asked that question in, in other examples. I won't say who over the years. And sometimes the person wants to protect the superstar by saying, no, he's always been that. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. So no, there I is an acknowledgement okay. there. Okay. Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe for your next column on McDavid's performance, you can get a hold of his mom and interview her, Pierre. Maybe that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, uh, Johnny, I was going to ask you, like, handicap the chances of McDavid winning, winning the entire thing, winning the scoring race. What do you think, percentage-wise? I would say he's probably he's got to catch two guys. That's a problem, not just one. He does have yeah. games in hand. He's second in points per game. He's chasing down guys. One guy who's been there before is playing incredible and has a great power play. 35% chance he's Okay. P, you in that same range? So, the thing is, it's not just chasing Kucherov, though, right? I mean, that's the... Yeah, I guess you, you calculated yeah. that. Right, right. Yeah, it all went it, into the yeah. computation, Pierre. It all went into the machinations and came out with 35. <laughs> I think... That high-powered computer it, system. What makes it's it hard, too, is... Uh, Tapa needs every single point Kucherov can deliver them because they're life and death to make the playoffs. You know what I mean? Not life so and death. So does Edmonton. Yeah. So does Edmonton. Uh, Edmonton yeah. needs home ice. Yeah. yeah. That's a great point. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to give McDavid a 50% chance. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. I'll go right in between the two of you. I, I mean, I like I said, I, I said he wasn't going to do it. So it's weird for me to put it over 50% right now. But six assists last night, I'll go 40%. Uh, okay, let's move on to the Toronto Maple Leafs. We'll bounce off this one reasonably quickly because uh, a lot of air was sucked out of the country yesterday covering the Morgan Riley uh, trial. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so we'll just, uh, yeah, we'll deal. But listen, it's a huge story, right? The Toronto Maple Leafs, their best defenseman on a team that doesn't have a lot of great defensemen, potentially facing five, six, seven, eight games. Who knew how many it was going to be? Lands at five. And then the question is, how much pressure is there on the GM to try and get something done maybe soon? Like, there was a lot tied up in all of this. So very quickly, MJ, let's talk about, I haven't got your opinion yet on the incident that happened and the number of games that he got. Give us your quick synopsis there. Okay, quick synopsis. Uh, a few different things can be true in the same moment, okay? The first and foremost, the most important thing is that Morgan Riley was always going to get suspended because you cannot cross-check people in the head. There is nothing that can happen on the ice that would make it okay to cross-check someone in the head. Even if you didn't really mean to get there, he got there. So that was plot number one. Number two, now this is not should this happen, but the fact that it does happen is if you do something that is some sort of showing up the opposition, there will be a reaction. Everybody knows that. We can debate whether there should be, but we know there will be the way the hockey world works now. So Ridley Gregg, when he takes that slapper, should know and did know. And if you ask around the league, and we all have, everyone's like, oh, yeah. Like, you got to know someone's coming after you in some capacity. To talk in your ear, to face wash you, to grab you, to try to fight you. Probably not to cross-check in the head. So, really, Greg should have known and did know that that was coming. Um, but it doesn't stop the fact that you can't put your stick in someone's head recklessly. So, those are kind of my thoughts. And I don't – and, like, if it was me, I would have given them three games. And I don't want to be barbaric here, but I don't he I don't think he hit him hard enough to warrant five. And I think there's a difference. Like I can slash you, Shoggy, be part of the game. I can slash you, get a two-minute penalty. I can slash mm -hmm. you, get kicked out of the game. I can slash you and get 10 games. Depends how hard I slash you and where. But he had so, so much time he, to think about it, John. Yeah, well, he had so much time to think about what am I gonna do here? But that's why I gave him three. Because if he hit him that hard in front of the net battling, he'd get a two-minute cross-checking penalty. But the fact that it was after the play, after a goal, had time to think about it, skated towards him, and clearly decided to do this. I won't go into the fact that there's a pruder hit his glove, then his shoulder, then his head, and he dropped his lower hand to mitigate the impact, whatever. He, in my opinion, he just didn't hit him hard enough to warrant five or six or seven games. And Greg wasn't hurt, thankfully. Didn't miss a practice, didn't miss a game, back playing, all good. Um, 
But I will say this, the idea that Toronto Maple Leafs are hard done by by the league, which I think their fans blah, blah, generally blah, blah, believe. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And like, I think maybe even some of the organization kind of like, eh, we get the short end sometimes. I don't think that is true. That's what I think about this. So now P? they're out with Riley for five games. They played awesome last night without him. They're mm-hmm. going to go through the five games. We'll be back next week. I guess on we go. Yeah, I mean, they covered a lot of it. I mean, I, I, I will say a couple things. I, I thought it'd be three or four games. I, I canvassed a couple of team executives once we knew it was an in-person hearing, which affects everyone's thinking, but I canvassed a few team executives before the announcement, and it was all over the place, which I think is interesting because usually most people running teams are close in their – and these obviously mm. not involved with Ottawa or Toronto. But I had one team executive say seven or eight games. I had another one saying it should be two. So I think it tells you that even smart hockey people were not seeing the same play. We're we're struggling with kind of a unicorn of a situation here. I thought three or four would would have been fine. I think five is is one game too many. It's fine. It's not the end of the world. The Leafs are not hard done by. That's all BS. Um, The Leafs, um, the PA has 48 hours to appeal on behalf of the player, by the way. And as we tape this, they haven't done so yet. Kind of useless to do so. Gary Bettman will never change it. Yeah. So I don't know why they would other than them, I guess, make a point as in, for the player. The last thing I would say, and I'm not blaming the victim, but MJ touched on it. If Claude Giroux is on a breakaway with the empty net in the Battle of Ontario, he's not taking that slapper. Right. Well, Agreed. I don't care about taking the slapper. Do what you want. You want to be a jerk? You want to insert yourself as the foil, the heel? Go ahead. But be prepared for a reaction. Not And don't be prepared right. for a cross-check in the head. But I'm saying really Greg should be like, okay, someone's going to fight me here. Or try to. Because You better be in the headspace, sir, prepared to defend yourself, right? That is reaching out and slapping a guy across the face with a glove and then taking your sword and putting it on yeah. the ground and then going, what, what, zero what, excuse what, for, what? Zero excuse for ever cross-checking a guy in the head. There's zero. There should be no argument. 100% Pierre. Okay. And, yeah. and, yes, yeah. and we all know that. That's the thing. Yeah. This, this is what... This is what has driven me nuts about this, is that (laughs) Ridley Gregg knew what he did was not something that you do without pissing off the other team big time. Hockey is a sport where when you piss off the other team big time, sometimes tough stuff might happen to you and you need to be prepared for that. Absolutely should not have gotten cross-checked in the head. That's never okay. But the two things can be true at the same time. You know, like it boggles my mind. Chew gum. How many people are saying, look, you could shoot the puck in the net however you want. What's what's with this code? Why does that matter? That's ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. I think that's the garbage conversation that's been had since this event happened, that there shouldn't be or isn't a code that would govern that. Of course there bloody well is. You're showing up your opponent. You're being a little, you know what you're being, which is fine. I laughed. I thought it was funny. But understand the environment you're making your living in. When you do that, be ready. That's all I'm saying. In the Battle of That's Ontario. And, and in the Amen. meantime, probably more important than this conversation is the pressure that Brad Tree Living, yes, is under mm. uh, to upgrade his blue line. And the reality is, you guys have talked to GMs about this over the years as well. Every GM will tell you the worst possible position to be in is to try to make a trade with all of your counterparts. No, you're desperate. Hmm. Yeah, ask Ken Holland at the beginning of the year. Uh, Well, uh, so, 
you know, Tree Living was already in on every single defenseman you can think of, and I think about five more that haven't those names haven't come out. Like I think he's double digit deep in the in the defenseman he's called on. Okay, that was before all this. He, he was already doing that, so that will continue. So if there is a trade for a defenseman the next week, it's, it's I'm telling you, he will come out and say it's not because Morgan Riley got suspended; it's because he was already attempting to upgrade his blue line. But he's not going to suddenly throw in his top prospect on top of what he's already offered for that. He's not going to panic. I'm telling you, he will continue yeah, to try. But if part of the deal, but... Pierre, is throwing in a third instead of a fifth. Do you maybe have a little more sense of urgency? Like, I'm not saying well, you sell the farm because of this, but yeah. you know, yeah, expedited well, a little he's, bit. He's going to trade for a D. It's happening between yeah. now and March 8th, if not two. <laughs> but. It won't be because of the suspension is, is what I'm telling you. Okay, let's dive into the trade talk, guys. Uh, Pierre, on Insider Trading, you had some interesting information about a trade that almost happened that didn't happen involving what I think is it's the most fascinating team heading into this year's trade deadline, the Calgary Flames. So quickly summarize your, your guys' reporting on that, and let's get into it on the Calgary Flames. Yeah, I don't know how close it truly got because at, at the end of the day, what I confirmed yesterday was that Jacob Markstrom was never officially asked to waive his no trade to go to New Jersey. So that's usually the last step in that trade conversation, right? So we know that. Number two, there was there were a few hurdles, but one of them that I confirmed is that New Jersey wanted Calgary to retain salary on Markstrom deal, which still, still has two and a half years left on his contract at $6 million a year. Don't know how much, but that was a real big stumbling block in that trade discussion that mm-hmm. the two teams had. And you can see why the Flames are like, really? Like two and a half years? Um, and, and if the Flames were even willing to do that, and they might be at some point, I think from what I can gather from the conversations I had yesterday, there was also a, a dispute on well, what is that worth then? Like that's that's another level of if we're if we're making Jacob Markstrom a four million dollar goalie or a four and a half million dollar goalie, what is that worth? So I think the two teams I think were, were certainly I think eager to be in that discussion. The Devils really like Jacob Markstrom to have for a while. We've talked about this before here on this podcast. But um, I don't know now if this thing is dead or if there's time to get back into it before March 8th. That was tough to tell yesterday. Uh, there are other goalies out there. The Devils are absolutely still making calls on goalies, as they should be, given where their team save percentage is. But uh, I don't know if they rescue the Markstrom thing or not. And, I'll, and ultimately, of course, the question is, would Jacob Markstrom wave? Um, we will mention it again. His best friend got traded to Vancouver recently. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he's conceded the fact that if they come to him, he's he's basically said the ball's in their court. They want to ask me, I'm not going to, he probably won't say no. And there is that element of pride and competitiveness that yes, I have a no trade and I guess I control my destination. But if the team's like, can we trade you to this team? Do you want I'm like, no, I want to stay with you. Like they're trying to get rid of you. So you're more <laughs> apt to be like, oh, okay, yeah, like let's go. And the, the devils, I've been, you guys know this, I've been hammering on the devils for Markstrom for about a month now. It just makes yeah. so much sense. And they're looking better. And did you guys hear Jack Hughes's soundbite after the game two games ago? <laughs> on national TV? On national said, TV? Or, national yeah. TV, in arena Mike Shoggy. Like, it wasn't just an interview. It was, like, in the in arena on the bench after the game. And he's like, well, when we make some saves, we win games. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's not lost on anyone, including the players, that their goaltenders haven't been good enough. You give them Markstrom and Hughes the rest of the year and a soft Metro, who knows what could happen? That makes a lot of sense. So 
you know, that's big for Calgary. But the other ones, like, I still see them trying to re-sign Hannafin. And Pierre, I don't know if you know, like, are those numbers reaching the eights yet for Hannafin? Because it seems like where that team is, where that organization is, taking a guy from 30 to 38 at eight, eight and a half, whatever it might be. Well, Hannafin's a good defender. He's probably not elite uh, in really kind of any one area. That, that also seems like sort of committed to the path that I thought they were trying to get off of uh, yeah. going forward. Well, I think we should hear within a couple of days, although I felt that last week on, on Hannafin either way, because the Flames have really tried to sign him. And it's like everyone involved in it is like, you know, could be in the next couple of days. So we'll see where it goes. Either way, by the way, I'm not committing to either scenario, but but there's, you know, the team and the player need some resolution here before the trade deadline. Um, what it tells you, though, that they've tried so hard to sign him to what would be a pretty massive deal, MJ, to, to your question is, is what I believe this to be the case is that the Flames are telling people around them we're not rebuilding. That even with the Lindholm deal and Zadorov and probably Tanev and maybe Markstrom, it's a lot of guys out, but they want to flip this quickly within a couple of years. Everyone wants to be sure. Winnipeg, I get it. I, I had a long sit down with Doug Armstrong this week in Toronto, the Blues GM, who was attempting that too, right? They're, the Blues don't want to rebuild. Doug Armstrong said our market can't do an eight to 10 year rebuild. So the Blues are trying to flip it within a couple of years as well. I think this is what a lot of teams believe in now, by the way. I, I don't think mm-hmm. the Ottawa, Buffalo, Detroit full teardown is, is as popular as it once was, Chicago. Um, and and so you're seeing this, the, 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 the retool. That's what Calgary wants to do. They, they, they want to be competitive in a hurry, but they got moves to make mm-hmm. before that. And one of them is, Hannafin's the one guy they wouldn't mind keeping, but I don't know if they'll be able to. What I find fascinating is that I love the sort of competitive spirit of the players who know their team is getting sort of yeah. picked apart a little bit. And they're given mm-hmm. like like Major League, the movie, and they're given a big forget you to the management. Like, I don't care what you guys are trying to take, take away from us. We're going to keep winning. We're going to keep fighting. And we're going to show you that we're worth uh, investing in as opposed to taking down. And it's rare that players' motivations and the team organization's motivations don't line up. Like, of course, everybody usually is in it to win it together. But the team is sort of like, we're not in it to win it right now. We're in it to set ourselves up for the future. The near future, maybe not the long-term future, but the near future. And I love that. And I want the Flames to keep on winning. And Like, they're right there. And it's (laughs) like Nashville. And it's St. Louis. And it's Arizona. These are not L.A. maybe, given they got waxed last night by Buffalo. Like, they're not trying to track down elite, elite teams. So yeah. the whole thing's fascinating. Although I think I think Craig Conroy has to stay the course. Like he's got to stay the course on oh, Tanev. I would do Markstrom. I would probably not re-sign Hannafin and get the big return. And then see <laughs> if you can get young players to expedite sure. the rebuild or re- And isn't that, and, you know, and I, isn't I, that it? Go ahead, Pierre. I, I, like the deadline is truth serum for GMs who are strong about their convictions. I, one of the things that Doug Armstrong and I went back down memory lane, you guys may remember this. At the deadline in 17, he traded Kevin Shattenkirk when the Blues were on their way to a 99-point season and making the playoffs yeah. <laughs> because, because the return was worth it. And then in the deadline in 18, mm-hmm. he traded Paul Stashley when at the time the Blues were sitting in a wildcard spot. The Blues ended up missing the playoffs by a point. But Armstrong's point is he just didn't feel it in those years for his team, but he quickly turned around and used one of those first in a Braden Shen deal. Like he wasn't, he wasn't blowing up his team. He was 
trying to play chess and say, I'm going to use some of these assets and this summer attack again and bring in, a, uh, bring in more help, right? That, I love seeing that at the deadline because, you know, in Armstrong's view, there are about 10 teams, the elite teams, which his team isn't part of right now. There are 10 teams that were willing to pay anything right now to go win a cup. Mm-hmm. All the other teams that may or may not make the playoffs can't get sucked into that. And, and I mm-hmm. love when you have the conviction of being comfortable with that as a GM. But, of course, he's been around a long time. Yeah, what's interesting here, Craig Conroy in his first run through with this, and we know what a team guy he was when he played, it will rip the guts out of him if his team is like, we can do it, we can do it. And he's like, well, we're still going to do these things. That will be counter to probably what his instinct as a team guy is. Let's play some match game here, Johnny, and we'll start with the Flames. So you talk about Markstrom and the New Jersey Devils. Uh, Let's match up Tanev and Hannafin, potential destinations, and Pierre, you can take a crack at that too. Tanev, I'm going to say Vancouver. I think Vancouver needs a right side defensive defenseman. Push Tyler Myers down. They got Noah Juleson playing right now. You don't mm-hmm. know what's going on with Carson Soucy. I think Vancouver has shown that they're all in. And I think that they might take a right. He's such a good natural fit there for what that team needs and as good as they are. Hannafin, um, you can sprinkle him around all over the place. Um, I don't know if, if he comes with an extension, then, then it might open up different options. But you know, I think Jersey could be interested in Hannafin because of Dougie Hamilton's injury and replacing him, and they could be pretty good. Uh, I could see Toronto nibbling around Hannafin as a puck-moving guy, Pierre. Uh, there'd be a lot of teams interested in Hannafin, but Tanev, to me, Vancouver seems like a really tight fit. The return. Well, and, and you know, you, you know, MJ, it's a fact that the Canucks tried to include Tanev in the Lindholm deal to begin with, and, and it just mm-hmm. became too unwieldy for Calgary and Vancouver to deal with at the time, i.e. the extra price tag that Calgary threw in there a couple weeks ago. But no doubt the Canucks would stay on Tanev. I, I still think, depending how things ended between Calgary and New Jersey here, <laughs> in their last conversation, hopefully not too badly because because Dougie Hamilton's $8 million AEV is off the books now for the rest of the year. I mean, he make he, he's probably going to come back if they make the playoffs, but he's off the books until the for the rest of the regular season. The Devils have a lot of cap room, and one of the reasons they want Markstrom at a discount AEV wise is because of past this year, because they got other contracts to worry about starting this summer. But they could do they could do Tanev and Markstrom in one deal, the Devils, mm. because they got ample cap room to do it for this year. Of course, Tanev would be a rental. The other thing is, if the Leafs end up with Tanev and they would have to include their first-round pick in that, um, I think the only way Brad Treleving does it, in my mind, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just it's just a gut feeling I have, is that he would have to know he's got a decent chance at extending Tanev so that it's not a rental for the Leafs. Um, that's the only way I see them going after Tanev, in my mind. Uh, let's get to the Edmonton Oilers quick here, guys. Um... Johnny, are there any really natural fits for you? My sense as a reporter covering this team is they're going to put a little bit more focus on the forward ranks as opposed to the blue line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they need a fourth line center that can contribute, and I think they need somebody to compete for that right wing spot on the second line. Um, you know, natural right. fits. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you think about, I think that's exactly it. That, that second line to me is the one. Like the fourth line center, yes, you can go maybe try to chase those ones down somewhere, but um, it's the, it's the, the second liner. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if Frankie Vitrano is a, a perfect guy there, but if he's available out of, out of 
Anaheim, could he be a good fit there? I, I just, you, you just, uh, I, when a player like that, Frankie Vertrato, maybe Jordan Eberle mm-hmm. could be, could be something. Uh, maybe you know, Jason Zucker, you know, if Arizona falls out, you know, players like that, it's going to be hard. Like I, I, Tarasenko has been relatively good. I don't know if you want to, you know, if he's going to come back and be an impact guy, I, you gotta be careful. Because you got to give a player, like, you can't just be like Tarasenko, good player historically. It's got to be a guy who can play in that role with those players in that style, which might need a little more pace. But um, yeah, players like that, like, I think would be an upgrade, another option on the second line, Pierre. Yeah. Or what about the Oilers deadline last weekend? And uh, of course, information in a week changes probably, but some of it still stands. And one of them is that one of the problems with the Oilers is their cap and, and that not only are they looking at potential upgrades, definitely for their top six and, and also on defense, if they can swing it, but they can't just add, they have to add and subtract mm-hmm. because of their cap. And so what they're debating internally when the Oilers are having their calls, according to people I've talked to is that, okay, so for trading for Jordan Eberle, a guy that is really growing popular in those Oilers front office discussions, the whole idea of the reunion and, and what he can bring. So, you know, who gets moved down? How does that affect our chemistry? Who gets moved out to make the math work on the cap? It, it's not just one thing, right? It's this domino effect. And, and I think the Oilers are really talking a lot about, we've got a good thing going here, but this is the year to go for it again. We don't know what this summer will bring. I don't want to go there. That's captain negative. We don't know what this summer will bring. And there's a definite sense of wanting to be completely all in right now. There's no question about that. They may, yeah. they may publicly, the Oilers may want to bring the temperature down on that because it creates a, expectations for March 8th. But believe me, they, they want to do all they can to help this team here win a cup this year. Players who have auditioned next to Leon Dreisaitl in the past month include Warren Fogle, Corey Perry, uh, Dylan Holloway landed there last night. They're looking Great for it internally. Holloway, and, yeah, really nice goal by Holloway. They're looking for it internally. It's clearly not quite there. So that, and by the way, the dollars and cents on the Oilers, this courtesy uh, our friends at Puckpedia, if they continue to ice the same roster they have from now until the trade deadline, they will carve out $2.4 million in cap space for themselves. They can go pick up a player at a $2.4 million value and add Anything over 2.4 needs to be money out, right. money in. So that's roughly the dollars and cents uh, that they're Which faced why with. why if, if you're adding both up front and on D, then someone yeah. probably has to go. Right. Yeah. Gets a little yeah. tricky for sure. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers are interesting. Another team that's, they're scrappy. They're sending a message, but a little more obvious the sell-off would be, Johnny. But some real good, some decent players there, some good defensemen and forwards. Um you think everybody goes? I mean, Sealer and Walker and Lawton, and uh, there's a bunch of names there. Yeah, so I, I think the way Philly should play this, I'll tell my old roomie Danny Briere this when I talk to him tomorrow because mm-hmm. they're in Toronto, but um, mm-hmm. is that like there will be players that will warrant a decent return, and they should trade those players because it's been an amazing year for Philadelphia, but they're not winning the Cup. They know that. They're still building towards the future. So if Sean Walker's not going to, help you win a cup this year and you can get a second rounder or a decent prospect or whatever, like you're going to trade him, you know, Scott Lawton, maybe a bit of a different, he's got a big long contract, but I think if it's not a good return, Pierre, 
like a value return, like a fifth rounder or a fourth rounder. Those are just crapshoots. See, they may or may not work. If it's going to be a fifth round return, then maybe you owe it to the team that has played so hard for you to kind of like, listen, we're going to, we're not going to add, but go ahead, finish it off if you can. But if it's going to be someone who's going to get you a good return, second rounder, B grade prospect or something better than that, I still stay the course and trade him, Pierre. Now, you got to make that judgment call, but I think that seems fair to the group, but also sticks to the plan. Yeah, it's it's uh, so I, I it's similar to Craig Conroy in Calgary in a lot of ways because Danny Breer mm-hmm. is a young GM, and and similarly his team is fighting like crazy to. to I mean, I thought after they were on a five game losing streak to enter the break that this was the beginning of the downfall for the Flyers, and they come out and win four in a row. It's like they're the most unpredictable mm-hmm. team in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the big picture will still prevail prevail for Danny Breer. The one thing I would say is that there's been a lot of negative. Uh, with the Flyers this year, and I don't think we should not sugarcoat this. The, the Carter Hart story is is a real life story that has hit the organization, and and you know, let's not. That's real life, but they're dealing with it. And 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 then you got the Carter Goche for some, you know, refusing to meet with the Flyers and force a trade. A lot of things have happened that I think staying in the race might have a little more value than what's perceived mm. for their market. Mm-hmm. I would say that. Right. <clears throat> Interesting. Going to be fascinating, man. The Calgary Flames and the Philadelphia Flyers, all eyes on them as we hurtle towards trade deadline. All right, we have Kent Hughes coming up uh, very quickly here. But before we go, gentlemen, we're going to do a Valentine-themed red card, yellow card, no card. I'm going to allow you the opportunity <laughs> to weigh in on a few of my actions here early on on this Valentine's Day. I'm going to allow you to assign... Two cards, any color of your choice. The first one, wishing other guys happy Valentine's Day. You know, whether it's a guy wishing a guy, you know, a buddy happy Valentine's Day or a girl wishing a girl happy Valentine's Day. Is it something that you say to friends? I said it to both of you and to Zuby today. So you can issue a card on that one. And then the other one, a buddy shares with you that he got a gift for his wife on Valentine's Day, right? He opens up enough to let you know that he did get something for her. And you ask what he got. Red card, yellow card, no card on both of those actions that I took today. I'll go first because this is very clear and obvious <laughs> to me. That's a full red card on happy Valentine's Day to your buddies. This is not a platonic <laughs> holiday. This is a romantic holiday. And Shaggy, well, I love you. I love you like Thanks, a brother. Bud, I love you too. All right, I don't wish you happy full Valentine's stop. Day no, no, no. I, I there's there's a rider on mine. Don't worry about it. So yes, red card. Don't wish me happy Valentine's Day. This this got nothing to do with you and I. Uh, <laughs> as far as asking your buddy about what the gift was, that's a no card if it's done privately. That might be at least a yellow card if it's done on a podcast <laughs> where, where you're trying to, where everyone who doesn't know this person gets that kind of insight. So I'll give you at least a benefit of the doubt yellow and a hard red for your egregious behavior on this Valentine's Day. Pierre, what do you got? Pay the aggrieved yeah, party. Yeah, I'll go red on the first one. I think happy Valentine's is for your partner uh, only okay. and no okay. one else. So that's Fair pretty enough. clear to me. One person, if you happen to be in a relationship, your partner. Um and what was the second one? I, I stopped listening. Me to asking you what you bought your wife. On a podcast, 
what unmentionables you got your wife oh. for Valentine's Day. And can you show them to us? It's basically well, what he said. I, I said that. Mine. I didn't do that it's one. It's on side. Well, I didn't mind it because mine were so, you know, traditional chocolate. Sure they were. Whatever. Sure but they I were. understand. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I understand your question, MJ. I understand your objection. Uh, yes. All right, guys, we got to wrap up. We got to wrap up. Ken Hughes is ready to go here. So uh, I'll take I'll take red cards across the board. I deserve it. Johnny, thanks, buddy. Uh, appreciate it. Now time to get to our interview with the Montreal Canadiens, the general manager, Kent Hughes. Have a great Valentine's Day, Johnny. All right, hot off his team's 5-0 drubbing of the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, Montreal Canadiens general manager Kent Hughes joins us. Uh, Kent, nice to see your team with uh, an effort like that last night, but maybe uh, Uri Slavkowski is where I would start the conversation. A goal, couple of assists, three points, over 20 minutes played. It's been a bit of an up-and-down journey with this player so far. Tell us what you were seeing from him in this moment and if this is what you envisioned when you picked him where you picked him. Yeah, I mean, we we expected him to uh, to be a big part of the future of our team. I guess the, the timing of it was something that's always somewhat uncertain with an eighteen year old when you're when you're drafting them. Um, and you know, at points last year and even this year, I guess uh, you know there was still some uncertainty as to when that would happen. Uh, but what we've seen from him, probably over, I mean, for the most part this year, but really over the last twenty or twenty five games, is just an understanding of, of his game, of, of what works for him, of where where he can impact the game most significantly. And I think he's playing to his strengths. And, you know, more than anything else, when you start to to get results, the confidence comes with it. And, and you can see that in his game. You can see it in his energy and his demeanor around the rink. Caden Primo with the shutout uh, last night, uh, uh, Kent. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, whether it's in French or in English, have people been talking about three goalies in Montreal at any no. point this year? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's, but, it's the first you know, time it's but your thought, Yeah, but your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, I'm sure, ideally, when the season started, clearly, he did not want to lose Caden Primo on waivers, which it would have required waivers for him to go to Laval. And you're probably happy he never did that, uh, the way he's coming along. But uh, what are your thoughts on managing uh, the three goalies? And, of course, um, you know, uh, I know from talking to other teams that I think there's interest out there in Jake Allen. How do you think this will play out here uh, in terms of March 8th and potentially, who knows, maybe in, into the summer? Well, I guess the starting point for us uh, at the beginning of the season was we, we didn't have uh, Sam Montembeau signed, right, and, mm -hmm. and on an expiring contract as a – possible or potential UFA. So the thought that we could come to the conclusion of the season minus two goalies was was um, enough incentive for us to try to figure out how we were going to manage three while we kind of turned our focus yeah. on trying to get Sam signed, which we did. I can't remember when, probably end of November or beginning of December. And then since that time, yeah, we've been focused on on looking for uh, a trade partner to uh, to move a goalie out. The uh, I mean, the goaltending market hasn't been very active, as we know. Um, <clears throat> I think there's uh, and then, listen, there's so many. There are different elements to moving a goalie than just saying, "Hey, we got a goalie." You don't put a for sale sign outside your house, and you're 
your business is done in a day, so to speak. Um, you know, I read an article, I think you may have written it, Pierre, yesterday in The Athletic about how teams are <clears throat> turning over coaches so much because they, there's so little flexibility under the cap to change mm-hmm. your lineup. So uh, clearly with goaltending, that's the goalies are affected by a cap situation as well. So there's a there's maneuverability issues. There's no trade issues. Uh, and there's just finding the right fit. So <clears throat> does it happen between now and the trade deadline? I, I've said it you know, multiple times here in our market. I can't promise that it will. Uh, do I anticipate going into next season with three goalies? No. Uh, so between right. now and the start of next season, we plan to uh, to resolve the situation. But when that happens, I mean, it, it, to a certain degree, uh, depends on uh, those teams that are in the market for a goalie and whether they can make that happen. Well, and just as a quick follow-up before Ryan jumps back in, I mean, um there aren't that many goalie trades mid-season historically. I think there's a reason for that. You know, it's sort of like I think teams are more than ever. Teams are also concerned about what they think they know about goaltending, judging from my conversations yeah. from other teams. But, but number two, and I know you're careful not to name my name, but you know, Jake, Jake Allen does have another year in his deals. So, I think it's. I mean, at least it's my opinion. If if you don't resolve this by March eighth, to me, it's not the end of the world at all because he has another year in his deal. So I, I think if you agree, you're in a position where if it makes sense, it makes sense. If it doesn't, you deal with it in the summer. I, I think if I'm understanding what you just said, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And and I know it's not ideal for, for particularly for Jake and for primes, but like I, I've said it a, multiple times, they've been incredibly professional about it. Uh, you know, tough coming out of a break uh, for somebody like Jake, where you have such an extended period of time off and, uh, you know, Sam's played great. So it's it's that balance between trying to get Sam more games and, and still keeping everybody uh, ready, prepared, active. And, and that's not easy for, as I said, for Jake and for, for Primes. But, you know, my, I tip my cap to them in terms of their professionalism. And uh, by and large, our goaltending has been great all season long. Yeah. So it's not like it's been a drag on us. I, I think people want the issue resolved and, I think in, in this market, a lot of times they want it resolved uh, by the trade deadline. But as happened last year, you know, with, with different situations that we didn't get done at the deadline, we did them in the summer. So uh, if, if it's there, we'll do it. And if it's not, uh, I'm confident that it's going to be resolved one way or the other before before the start of next season. Some of the decisions that you have to make you know, potentially involve players that have time left on their deals, as, as Pierre just pointed out. And I guess you have to juxtapose that with, in your mind, how long do you think it'll be before you are ready to consistently compete for those playoff spots and consistently be in that fight every year? Because you potentially, I mean, I think about a, a guy like David Savard who does so much in helping bring along younger players, but there's obviously value with a player like that as well. So I guess I'll just ask the question, in your mind, how long do you think before this roster that you're you know, shaping and putting together each year can consistently compete for a playoff spot? And how much does that factor into decisions like moving a player like Savard that has time left on his deal, who you know is helping bring along these young players? Listen, I, I think it's there's a lot of consider, considerations. One is is how quickly we'll be ready to compete for a playoff spot. It's also how quickly our young guys are, are ready to assur- assume more responsibility on the back end uh, and how much his leadership helps bring those players along. It's, it's 
I wish I could tell you it was just a very simple answer that we had written in our uh, in the calendar. Okay, we're ready at this point in time. It's a constant mm-hmm. evaluation of our young D of our uh, our group at, uh, as a whole, not just our back end, but the team. And you know, I've said it before, and it's not an excuse. It's just it it affects. Our, the injuries affect our ability to really evaluate the group and see uh, what we look like completely healthy. You know, losing Kirby in the first game of the year, <clears throat> we didn't come into the season with an expectation that we'd make the playoffs. We weren't ready to roll over, but we didn't expect that that uh, it was all a zero sum. We had to make the playoffs, but we certainly thought Kirby was going to be a big part of our season and to lose him four periods in you know, it impacted. We put people in different situations. We made a difficult decision, uh, what, about two weeks ago now to trade Sean uh, to Winnipeg, which we knew, again, would would uh, weaken our team in the short term, but we thought it was the right thing. So uh, whether it's David Savard or, or other players and other decisions, we kind of, we're in a, it's like a very fluid, dynamic situation. I, I can't give you a specific answer to it. Well, uh, and you mentioned Sean Monahan. Of course, we were going to bring that up. I said it when we signed Sean this summer. He he was so confident in terms of how he felt physically and, and the confidence that he could make it through a season. I didn't have any. Sean's a terrific hockey player. I thought we would have got a first round pick to trade him the year before had he not been injured and, and he had an adductor issue that. Uh, he went to see a, a specific doctor, a different change in terms of the way to approach repairing it. And he was, he felt great. We were confident uh, that, that um, he was going to be healthy for the first time in a long time. And, you know, the, the rest of it has nothing to do with me. It's Sean's play, right? If Sean plays well, he's, he, he commands that value in the marketplace. If he doesn't play well, that's a different story. And, you know, it's really more credit to him and, and I'm hopeful uh, for his sake, that uh, they have a great run in Winnipeg. Now, the, the Lindholm deal clearly had an impact on that, Kent. And, and I'm wondering, once Lindholm got traded to Vancouver, um, and I think you share this with local media in your in your Zoom call, but how quickly, like, what was your phone like? Because Monaghan's the next guy on that list as a rental center. What were those 24 hours like, or I guess 36 hours, it turns out? as far as, you know, teams quickly reacting market-wise? Yeah, I think there there were a couple of teams that were quick to pivot uh, to Sean. And, and then from our standpoint, like, <clears throat> as you go through the year, you're identifying teams that may or may not have interest in them. Uh, some are a definite, some, you know, it's just a timing issue. And for others, it's, it's a maybe, maybe not. So... When things pivot quickly like that, you try to uh, get in touch with with the teams that could or do have interest and see where they are timing wise and balance that against, excuse me, an offer that you have and and whether you're if teams aren't ready to move or whatnot, are you willing to wait or do you take uh, what's the expression a bird in the hand? Uh, and and in this particular case, you know we felt that the the upside of waiting uh, wasn't significant enough. To, uh, to not move forward at that time. What are those uh, those tactical discussions? And I know you have your pro meetings and you, you know, you're trying to have everybody in alignment. 
But I wonder if the average person out there understands just the level of strategy that's involved in the timing around trade deadline and the ebb and flow of value coming and going and how much of a subtle nuance is that that maybe people don't quite understand just how much can change day to day, week to week that you are constantly doing the math on? Yeah, I, listen, we, I mentioned this too in our press conference. If you look last year, the the D market shifted pretty quickly and, and maybe mm-hmm. the forward market, but we weren't as focused on it uh, when Washington and, and Nashville made made the decision to uh, mm-hmm. be sellers and Ekholm and Ekholm and Orlov went into the market. Those weren't players that certainly we were anticipating being part of the that market going, uh, you know, a month out. We didn't see that happening necessarily. So uh, there's unknowns that, that you have to kind of assess and, and determine and try, you know, you, you do as much as you can to evaluate what a team might do based on their situation, where they are today, what they have coming, uh, you know, does it make sense? And you you make educated guesses, I guess, in terms of, of that marketplace. But I think at the end of the day, timing to another degree also depends on, as Pierre alluded to earlier, is it somebody on an expiring contract or does he have term left? When somebody's on an expiring contract and you're in a rebuild like we are, uh, it's it's hard to let an asset walk out the door for free if there's value to that asset. And I, I often say I hate to refer to a player in that regard, but um, but it's something that we have to be mindful of. And if somebody has term, uh, then you know whether it was Petrie or or Eddie or different players like that, where maybe there was an expectation it would happen at the deadline, it happened afterwards. Right. Well, and I think one of the underappreciated parts of all this, you know, as you guys keep, you know, putting your your changing this roster, you're in transition. You know, you got a lot of praise for the Monahan deal, but but I wonder what your conversation is like with a very competitive head coach like Marty St. Louis in that moment, if you don't mind sharing. I mean, you have to tell him you just traded Sean Monaghan, who's having a, a really good year for him. And and what is that like, even though I know that he's he understands the big picture, but in that moment, what's that conversation like? Fortunately, it was over the phone, Pierre. <laughs> was it a quick phone call? I didn't get I didn't get the stare or, or the, the look away <laughs> while he's talking to me. Um yeah, it's hard for the coaches, right? They're they're coaching to win the next game, the next shift, and and we expect that. And and if they didn't do that, then I have no idea how the locker room would react to it all. So mm. we expect that out of them. Uh, I think they they get the big picture, but that doesn't make that type of news, especially because the team was playing well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had been on a stretch where even even when we weren't winning games, like I think our last game prior to the trade was was against Pittsburgh, and the team played well. Um, so it's hard when you're grinding every day as a coach or a player to uh, to build from on one game to the next, and then all of a sudden, as management, we we take an important piece of that team away. Um, but as I said at the deadline, like since I've been here. There have been so many injuries and things that were unanticipated by the group that they've been pretty resilient to in, in terms of dealing with it and changes in the lineup. And, uh, you know, I think Marty spoke to the team afterwards and said, we're not victims here. And, you know, we're going to go out and keep doing what we're doing. And we're not a one-player a one team. 
Hmm. So it's your job to keep track of the big picture here, where the organization wants to get to, what it's going to take to get there. So I ask you, in the big picture here, in reference to the rebuild and, and becoming the team that you want to become, how do you think it's going and what is at the top of your priority list in terms of when you look at this group, what it has and maybe what you'd like to add? Big picture. Don't know exactly how you're going to do it yet. What do you think you need here for the big picture of this, this rebuild? Um, it's hard to say how it's going because we're sitting whatever's, you know, in the bottom 10 of the league still. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, the, the mission here is to sit the top 10 of the league instead of the bottom 10. And until, until we see that, it's really hard to say that we're, we're uh, we've accomplished much of anything. You know, we've been in, in a phase, it's been more kind of an asset accumulation phase, right? Where we're, we're moving players out, you know, initially we're moving players out in part also to create some cap flexibility. And, and we've been able to do that to a certain degree. Uh, and, <clears throat> You know, we've accumulated assets mostly in the form of draft picks. Uh, you know, we, c- certainly we've traded for some players or we've used some picks in the Matheson or Newhook have come in or a doc. Uh, and I think we need to continue down that path of, of continuing the draft, but can, continuing to look to add to our group in terms of established NHL players that can help us take the next step that are within a certain age frame, right? Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> Big picture, those guys have to be younger players. That doesn't mean that at some point along the way, we're not adding an older player for experience or leadership or other things that we think this group this group needs. Um, but where we're at is is a combination of looking to add those players and looking to see where our guys go. You know, we're looking for uh, some of our young D that are still playing amateur to come turn pro here at the end of the season, and we're we're anxious to see how they look. Uh, over here at the pro level and, and uh, continue to assess from there. It, it's it's hard to know until you see players do it. You can see them mm-hmm. do it at different levels, but until they do it here, it's really difficult to, to give that assessment. So I'd say from an asset accumulation component, you know, we're, we're happy where we are. As far as constructing a team, I think we have a long way to go, a long way in terms of things that need to be accomplished, the timeline on it, I'm hoping it's shorter than longer, but I, I couldn't give you a, a timeline because I need to actually, or we need to execute those those changes. Last question for me, Ken, and, and thanks again for taking time here during the busy time of year. But um, you know, we'll see whether you use all your picks or not. As you mentioned, you you starting to develop a reputation for being pretty active at the draft and trading for guys like like Doc and so on with some of those picks, but. Uh, as things stand now, what's your view of the draft? Because I've heard some some different things. I, I know some teams I've talked to are really excited about this draft, but others feel it drops off after a certain point. What's your sense when you look at what's available there for for you guys, generally speaking? Well, we had our our, uh, our M. I, I would say coming into the summer or out of the summer, um, like out of the Halinka tournament, which is usually that that first glance. I wouldn't say that our guys were enthusiastic or overly enthusiastic, um, okay. but but I've seen a shift from you know the start of the season to when we had our meetings in in uh, in January, where there were a lot of names that weren't 
part of the conversation at the beginning that we're emerging. So I, I think by and large, our guys are, uh, are relatively optimistic. I, I always feel that the, the commentary on the draft is about how high end the top two, three, four, or five. So if Connor Bernard's part of a draft, we're, we're talking about this being a, a, yeah. a generational draft, right? Uh, at the end of the day, um, you get surprised sometimes by by players that weren't part of it. I don't think David Reinbacker was somebody in in September of 2020 mm-hmm. that people were talking about, and we're very happy to have him part of our organization. Well, listen, Kent, we really appreciate you taking the time. I can only imagine how busy it is at this time of year, but uh, good luck with things heading into trade deadline and uh, and against the Rangers tomorrow night. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Pierre, uh, thoughts overall on Kent Hughes and the you know the job he's done this year and what you might expect from him as we uh, hurdle towards the trade deadline? Well, I mean, he's got the biggest job out of the way. Monaghan was going to be his biggest trade chip, so mm-hmm. it's kind of it's a nice feeling for a GM, I think, to know that I think he probably maxed out the value there and now he can focus on what else comes at him. Obviously, the three-goalie situation, you could tell in his voice that, that that's been a situation and he's having to handle that in his market. Um, and it's not ideal, uh, but it, I, I agree with him that if the deal isn't there for Jake Allen before March 8th, don't force it. He's got another year on his deal. The goalie carousel always happens every summer. So I'm with him that if it's not there, wait till the summer, given that he's got another year on mm-hmm. his deal. And I know that there are other teams around the league that have actually told Ken Hughes, I can't do it now, but I might be able to do it this summer. So I think that's why he probably feels that. Right on. And our thanks to the Montreal Canadiens and to Ken Hughes once again for joining us. Uh, P, that'll wrap up the podcast, buddy. Thank you kindly. Hope you have a great Valentine's Day. And bud, I hope that gift works out fantastic for you. Oh, love you, man. (laughs) Love you too, pal. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, folks. Thanks for your downloads and your subscriptions. And a huge thanks, as always, to our amazing title sponsor, Kuma Outdoor Gear. We'll chat with you again next week right here on Got Your Back, NHL edition. Happy Valentine's Day.